This is episode number 43 of the To Birth and Beyond podcast. We're so excited to have you with us on this episode of To Birth and Beyond. I'm Jessie Mundell, mom, kinesiologist, and fitness coach to pregnant and current moms. And I'm Anita Lambert, mom, pelvic health and orthopedic physiotherapist with a focus on women's health. On the show, we provide information and education on fitness, the pelvic floor, fertility, pregnancy, birth, postpartum, and women's health. We offer a brave space to have candid and vulnerable conversations on the struggles and joys of motherhood, including all aspects of our physical, mental, and emotional health. While you're listening in, please remember that the information on the show is not meant to diagnose or treat any medical conditions. Please speak with your medical provider for all things related to your healthcare. We're so excited to have you. Let's dive into today's show. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of To Birth and Beyond. It's Jessie Mundell and Anita Lambert. On today's episode, we're so lucky to have the creator of Black Girl Pilates, Sonia Herbert Price. Sonia, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be on here. We are going to be talking today about all kinds of incredibly important things, Sonia's personal experiences through pregnancy and with premature babies, black maternal health care and the racial disparities that exist within that system specifically, as well as her organization, Black Girl Pilates and her brand new mentorship program for black women in fitness. Sonia is a New York-based writer, speaker, competitive powerlifter, and classically trained Pilates instructor, as well as holding certifications in TRX and kettlebell training. She fuses teaching methods to meet the varying needs of her clients, who range from current and former athletes to people who strive simply to be fit in everyday life. She is the founder and creator of Black Girl Pilates, a platform that highlights and supports Black, Afro-Latina Pilates instructors, and Black Girl Fit and Well, a panel of the best Black female-identified instructors and trainers discussing the importance and impact of health, fitness, and wellness for the Black female community. Incredible. We're so thankful that you're on with us today. Sonia, can you just tell us a little bit more about how you came to be in this career in fitness from social work, what you're feeling called to create in the fitness industry currently, and anything else we need to know about you? Well, um, I've been pretty open about it. I don't know if you guys listened to, uh, I did a podcast maybe not too long ago with Julie Reed uh, from Muscles to Masses. And uh, it's pretty, pretty vulnerable podcast. So now that I pretty much opened up my whole life to the world, <laughs> then I can uh, talk about how I ended up in fitness. So uh, to be pretty blunt, which uh, is pretty much my personality these days, uh, I got fired. Uh, so I've never been fired from a job ever in my life. Um, love social work. I loved it. Still love it. Just not in it anymore. At the time, I was currently going through a divorce, and um, you know, for those of you out there who've gone through a divorce before, or some sort of breakup, or some sort of something uh, that causes uh, some sort of grief, it changes your whole life. And so sometimes you, um, you know, you kind of lose it there, and uh, I did, and I just was not performing at the capacity that they knew that I could perform at. I was uh, one of their top workers. I mentored a lot of the folks that came in. They loved the work that I, you know, that I did. 
Um, they are very supportive during my divorce um, or my initial divorce and all of the things I was going through. However, my work was just not showing the type of worker that I that I was. And, and they really tried. They did. And, you know, I, I did, too. But, you know, it just it just didn't work itself out. So I was there a good two years and it took a lot for them to have to fire me. And we had a whole conversation. It was probably, it was probably one of the best firings I've ever had, which I've only been fired once. So, (laughs) but, um, you know, they were very sad to do that. And, you know, my, my program director and my director at the time were, uh, amazing folks, um, and doing some great work in, uh, the substance use community. Um, we did harm reduction was a whole nother, you know, podcast, but, uh, you know, we all kind of hugged and cried and they said, you know, um, we're still here for you. So love you and all this kind of stuff like that. And I said, I totally get it. Um, and you know, I packed my stuff up and, and left that day, called my mom and told her, you know, Hey mom, I just lost my job. And she's like, okay, it's fine. Just go home and go to sleep. And I was like, okay, that's not the answer I wanted, but okay. Um, I felt a bit of a freedom at that point for some reason. Um, but at that time I was all, I had already finished my Pilates certification and, um, I'd been teaching for a little bit by then. And, uh, so I was like, you know, what? I've always wanted to go into fitness. Um, you know, I was already, you know, living in my own apartment, you know, waiting for my divorce to be final. I had kids to support, so I was like, I'm just going to throw myself into it. I was working for a big box gym that I always keep, you know, unnamed. <laughs> um, but you can always look on my LinkedIn to find out who they are. <laughs> um, so I was working for them part time and I just threw myself into it. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a good time, you know, for five years there trying to figure out who I was as an instructor, learning how to sell myself. Uh, figure out what type of clients I wanted to work with, who I did not want to work with, um, and just kind of finding myself, I think, in the fitness arena and, um, you know, meeting some new friends, networking and all this kind of stuff like that and finding my way through there. So, so yeah, so I was just kind of, I always say I was just thrown into it. And so I've been there ever since. So, yeah. Um, and, in regards to what was the other question that you asked me? I was wondering what you're feeling called to create in the fitness industry right now. And yeah, mm-hmm. if you can just tell us a little bit more about the specific work that you're doing in 2018 and how it's changed over, over the last year, couple of years. So the work right now that I'm trying to create in the fitness industry is I want to see a lot more black female representation um, even previous to my time in, in fitness, I was kind of having these rumblings in my soul about representation period as a black woman, not even just in fitness, but even in my previous career as a social worker and seeing the, you know, the clients that I worked with who are primarily black female or Lat- Lat- Latina female, um, and just not really seeing a lot of representation of me as their worker um, and being, you know, maybe like uh, 
one of few people. Um, and then as I made the transition into fitness, it didn't really dawn on me, to be honest, initially. I kind of was just like, oh, this is great. It's fantastic. We're all here together, blah, blah, blah. And then as time went on, I realized that I wasn't, you know, I was the only one, you know. Um, and fortunately, my teacher, Cynthia Shipley, um, who is a Ramana's uh Pilates instructor, classical Pilates instructor through Armada and is a teacher of teachers. Um, she was a black, she's a black woman. And, um, you know, I had her as an example, but I just wasn't seeing that. And I also noticed even amongst my friends who are personal trainers that I wasn't seeing very, I wasn't seeing very many black female um, trainers or even uh, group fitness instructors. I wasn't seeing it in the management as well and then even further up the management chain so initially uh and this kind of almost goes into black girl pilates initially when i first kind of had the idea it was called pilates instructors of color and i wasn't the person who was going to lead it it was actually going to be diane harvey who's also in my group hi diane and hi cynthia um and so we didn't really get it off the ground because a lot of the women you know in the group at the time they were dancers and they are still dancing uh still creating you know I was the only one who was just you know not a dancer just a mom you know working and doing my thing so it just kind of didn't take off and and uh you know later on down the line um you know it's just like I still don't understand why we're not represented but then I also wanted to um I also thought representation was important because I wanted to bring it to my black community um, but I was just like, but there's just, I don't, I'm not seeing us, so why not? Um, so in 2017, it's funny, I'm still, I'm still kind of stuck in 2017. I don't know why, because <laughs> it's 2018, but 2017, which is literally a year and some change ago, um, in May, it was, yeah, I think it's a year and a half, literally. Uh, that's when I started Black Girl Pilates, and uh, I was going through a depression at the time, and had gone through a, a breakup with my ex-boyfriend um, and uh, trying to figure out what the purpose of my life was. And, you know, lots of things were going on in in um, in the United States of America. I guess we call it United. Um, you know, we had a new administration. Uh, Charlottesville had happened. Uh, I think Sandra Blonde, Trayvon Martin, lots of things that happened over the course of time. And so it just really put in my heart, you know, like now is really the time for representation in, in fitness and also um, not necessarily merging um, uh, the talking about race within the fitness arena, but that the two are not separate. There's no separation of church and state, so to speak. Um and so the other thing was just not wanting to be alone, you know, not wanting to having other women to talk to about what I was experiencing in a very white space. So I created what I, you know, what I couldn't find. Um, and so, you know, the rest is just, you know, a long history. It feels like we've been around forever, but it's only been a year and some change. And, um, you know, with that uh, came, you know, so many other things, you know, the, the articles and, you know, many podcasts later, um, 
also, you know, Black Girl Fit in the Well was also, uh, that was also birthed at the same time. I just didn't, I didn't act on it until this year, pretty much, uh, along with, you know, the mentorship project that came actually as of recent. Um, but so many things came out of Black Girl Pilates and just wanting to see the representation, trying to figure out why we're not represented, trying to have those discussions um, trying to see what can be, you know, and what will be done about those things. And if that meant creating our own space for it, um, for safety purposes, um, and for represent representation purposes, then that's what it meant. Um, and so at this point, what I'm doing is with, with all the things that I've started is creating spaces or safe spaces for black women in fitness to discuss those issues within the fitness industry in regards to um, racism, you know, white supremacy, uh, white privilege, um, and all that kind of stuff like that, um, and giving them a space to be able to talk about those things without being tone policed or um, or shut down in some type of way. Um, so yeah, so that's pretty much what I'm what I'm working on now. Besides all the many other things that are going around in my mind at the present moment, <laughs> that's a lot, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, Sonia, can you even share even a little bit more about the details of Black Girl Pilates? Kind of just so our listeners know, you know, how they could get involved, or exactly how it um, is. It just in your community, or is it beyond that? Yeah, so Black Girl Pilates is pretty much, it's pretty much in my Black community. So I have a Facebook support group for Black women who teach Pilates. And currently, I have 290 women, maybe 291 women uh, in that group. And this is all over the world, which is amazing. Um, and so I keep it that way as a safe space so that they can, we can all come in and talk about, you know, what our day was like, or maybe even ask questions, uh, talk about what it's like to, you know, for those of us who are teaching Pilates, well, most of us, the majority of, of us are, um, we don't always get to work with clients who look like us. So we're primarily working with, you know, by, with white bodies. Uh, so that's all we see. That's all we cue. And so when we do get a body that looks like ours in front of us, then we have to kind of rethink things like, oh, my God, you know, so what would you do for this body? Or, you know, we talk about everything from politics sometimes um, to um, what we use on our hair. You know, what do you use on your hair, you know, uh, to kids sometimes, um, you know, or Pilates with kids to teaching men, we talk about a little bit of everything and there's several Pilates forums out there and they pretty much kind of stick to like, you know, um, Pilates, that's it. We talk about everything, um, as black women and how, um, you know, just what it's like to navigate through those spaces. So I wanted to, I wanted that space, um, for us to feel safe and secure without, uh, the white gaze without someone saying, well, not all of us, you know, that kind of thing like that. Um, and so it's almost like, and what I've said to the group recently, it's like we have created uh, our own Wakanda, you know, 290 of us, you know, and, and growing 
you know, so we have our own little like Pilates Wakanda. That's what I call it. I might actually make it a (laughs) t-shirt. Oh my goodness. I love that. And, uh, I see also, because I follow you on Instagram, of course, and everyone should definitely be following Sonia and Black Girl Plies on Instagram because it's so cool to see what you're also doing in person with the organization too and hosting your meetups and your Christmas parties and all kinds of stuff. So yeah, you all, you get together with these people, with these instructors, teachers too, and have Mm in-person events. Yeah, so um, I... Last year, we had our first meetup in October, and so there's, like, a huge, like, gap in between meetups. So we had the first one in October, and then this year we had our second one in July, and I noticed there was just, like, a huge gap in between. Although we were talking in the group, um, and, you know, there were various, like, mini meetups, like a lot of the women would, you know, they'd come in and visit New York City, so, of course, I would have to go meet them because they want to meet me, typically, Um, and then, you know, everybody else who would come. So I wanted to kind of close the gap in between the meetups. So I was like, okay, well, what can we do here in New York city or even in, you know, other, you know, other States where there's a larger group of them to, you know, kind of close the gap. So we're not just meet up and then we just meet up in the group. So I came up with, um, a Pilates brunch and black girls. So the first one was here in New York city and we had it at, uh, one of our sister's uh, studios. Uh, Her name is Marimba Gold-Watts. She is actually the first black woman to win the Pilates Anytime Teacher Contest. Uh, So she won this year. So that's very, that's amazing. It's amazing. It's all, it's just, I wanted to cry because she, because she won, but she's incredible. We had it at her studio and she taught us a class. um, And we had a little brunch, which was, um, catered by one of our black girl Pilates brothers. Um, We had tacos and uh, we just had a really, you know, we had a wonderful time just kind of talking and, you know, nothing really special. We got our asses kicked. I hope it's okay to curse on here. (laughs) If not, you can block it out. (laughs) Um, From there, one of, I think there's going to be another one. There was one in Washington, DC, the end of October. There was also, there's going to be one soon in Atlanta, uh, that's in, in, in the works now. And then we also have our Christmas party coming up uh, for New York City. And so I let them, you know, I offer them to like, if you guys want to organize a Christmas party or whatever it is, you know, just so you guys can just meet up together because you're all in the same state, maybe in the same vicinity, you know, just so you won't have to just come into the group and talk to each other. You can actually see each other in person and you know, maybe have more meetups and stuff like that. And I don't necessarily, I don't have to be there. This whole group is for you guys to be able to find out that, that each other exists. And then, oh my goodness, there's like 20 of us around. Let's get together on a regular basis. Let's, you know, let's support each other and things like that. And so with these extra things in between, it gives them a chance to kind of like organize, you know, let's organize a brunch, you know, or, you know, summertime, let's organize a beach day where we all go together and bring our kids and our families and things like that. So I'm helping to cre- helping them to create these little mini Wakandas of their own in many communities um, so that they can support each other. So I don't have to be there. My job was to create this space and then to encourage them to create their own small little spaces like that. And they can come back to the group you know, as a whole, and then we can support each other as a, as a larger group. 
Yeah, it's incredible what you've created in such a short period of time. And I love that it's all around the world, how you mentioned within the group. Do you mm -hmm. find these other little groups, like Jess and I are in Canada, do you find are there kind of Canadians in the group that may form, you know, those types of events elsewhere or? Um, do we have any, I'm trying to figure out if I have any, I do have, um, we do have a brother who's in Canada, um, mm -hmm. Mark Reed, who he has a, he has a hashtag and I guess it's his, it's its own brand called Real Men Do Pilates. Hi, Mark. <laughs> um, I have one of his t-shirts. Um, I don't think that I have anybody in Canada yet, but just him so far. Um, but, oh, we also have, we have a meetup actually that's going to be uh, in, um, I think it's going to be in Barcelona, Spain. Wow. Yeah. So a lot of them who are in the European area, they're going to be flying into that. So that's going to be in April. So I'm really excited about that. And uh, one of these days when I have like a hell of a lot of money, I will be able to go to all these meetups <laughs> and travel there. That's the plan. But um, I don't have that kind of money to go to Barcelona, Spain <laughs> and at this present time. But, um, you know, maybe they'll be able to FaceTime me or Skype me in or something like that uh, just to do like a little hello or something. But, you know, you never know. I mean, maybe I might, might win the lotto and I might end up, you know, in Barcelona, Spain. So, um so yeah, so I'm really happy about uh, I'm really happy about like all of these sort of like other meetups that are happening besides the the main one which is in New York City. So a lot of them fly in for that. But uh, hopefully we'll you know I'll find out you know I'll find some folks in Canada I hope sometime soon besides Mark. <laughs> mm -hmm. And actually there's another there's another gentleman um, I can't remember what his name is but he's also in Canada. So right now we just have two brothers there but no sisters to my knowledge at this point. Maybe, maybe we'll find you some after this podcast yeah. episode airs. Hopefully. Hope so. I hope so. It's fantastic. Uh, we want to come back to your work in fitness near towards mm -hmm. the end of the episode, but I want to transition into speaking about your experiences in pregnancy, prenatal and postnatal healthcare, specifically as a black woman, as this conversation is imperative to be speaking about. I want to mm -hmm. give some context, and this is from a National Public Radio article. According to the CDC, black mothers in the U.S. die at three to four times the rate of white mothers, one of the widest of all racial disparities in women's health. Put another way, a black woman is 22% more likely to die from heart disease than a white woman, 71% more likely to perish from cervical cancer, but 243% more likely to die from pregnancy or childbirth-related causes. So for black women, there are 44 deaths per 100,000 live births. Compared with white women, there are 13 deaths per 100,000 live births. And specifically in New York City, where you're based, Sonia, the city's outcomes feature a worsening racial divide. Between 2006 and 2010, black women were 12 times more likely than white women to die from pregnancy-related causes, and that was up from seven times more likely between 2001 and 2005. It's horrifying. We would be interested, if you're comfortable, telling, uh, sharing with us what your pregnancy experiences were like. And I'm also interested, were you based in New York at the time of your pregnancies? No, it was not. I was actually, I was living in Texas. That's where I'm from. Okay. Uh, 
I don't even want to say I'm a proud Texan, especially at this present moment. Um, but anyway, um, yes, I, so my first, um, my first lovely child, uh, who's my 25 year old daughter, I had had, um, I'd had two miscarriages before her, um, which was interesting because my doctor, I actually had, I had a black, um, OBGYN and uh, he was just like, I just don't understand how you can't, you know, why you are having so many problems. You're in such great shape, blah, blah, blah. But as we know, it doesn't matter what type of shape you're in. I mean, you could, you never know what's going to happen during your pregnancies. So when I got pregnant with my daughter, um, I was on uh, progesterone because my doctor was concerned that I didn't, he said that I didn't have enough in my body. So I started taking uh, progesterone suppositories. Um, because he was afraid that I might miscarry again because I'd had two previous, so I was considered a high-risk pregnancy. So things are going along pretty well um, for a little bit, and I can't remember because it was 2,000 years ago, um, but <laughs> it feels like it. Um, but eventually, I think it was probably in my first trimester, maybe almost like the first part of my second trimester with her, then I started to bleed. And I got really, I got got afraid because I'd had the previous two um, um, miscarriages. Went into the doctor, and I found out that uh, I had placenta previa. Um, so my doctor is like, "What are you doing, playing volleyball?" I was like, "No." <laughs> so uh, he put me on bed rest for a week, and um, at the time I was I was in social work and, and working and, and things like that, and I was living in Fort Worth and uh driving to dallas with my kid's dad at the time my now ex-husband and um you know my job was fairly you know it was fairly stressful but not too bad at least not that i thought of so i was on bed rest for a little while uh eventually went back to work you know things were things were good and i go in for my regular checkups and he's like well you know your blood pressure is kind of like on a you know it's kind of going up and down i'm a little concerned so i'd like for you to change your diet so I was like, well, what does that mean? And he said, well, um, you're going to have to decrease the amount of uh, sodium. And so I was like, okay, great. So <laughs> um, so I remember specifically I went to a party, a friend's party, and they had nacho cheese there. So I was like, oh, great. I'm going to have nacho cheese, you know, with chips. Same week, I go into the doctor, and my doctor takes my blood pressure, and he was like, okay, what have you been doing? And I was just like, nothing. What did you eat recently? Nacho cheese. And I also had chili. And he was like, what? And I was like, yeah. And so I was like, you can't do that. And I was like, okay. he said, your blood pressure is just too high. you got to stop. So cut down on the sodium, whatever. Um so then um, around, I think I, let's see, Rebecca, I think might have been around 31, 32 weeks, I think, go into the doctor and um, my doctor takes my blood pressure. And then again, I, you know, my memory is horrible. But, you know, the test that they give you when they check your urine, they check for protein in your urine, right? I can't believe I'm remembering these things. That was 25 years ago. Um, so it came back, like, green. And so, so 
my doctor looks at me and he's like, you have to go to the hospital right now. And he's like, are you okay? And I was like, I feel fabulous. And he's like, that's the problem because you're not. And he said, are you seeing stars? And I was like, well, kind of, sort of. He's like, your, bre- your blood pressure is so high. I'm surprised that you have not like fainted right about now. And I was like, but I feel fabulous. He's like, that's the thing. He said, so what you have is you have preeclampsia. And I was just like, well, what is that? You know? And he said, well, it's a pregnancy induced, um, you know, your blood pressure increases um, and it's pregnancy induced. And so I was like, okay. And he's like, you, so fortunately his office was across the street. So he sent me over um, and he said, I have a bed for you and all this kind of stuff like that. So I just go over, put my gown on and there I am. And I end up hooked up to all these machines and they couldn't get my blood pressure down. Um, that's when I actually started to feel it. My body started to swell. Um, they were trying to keep her in as long as they could, but they, you know, they couldn't. So he came in and told me, you know, we're going to have to give you a C-section. And, you know, as you know, as moms, when they tell you you have to have a C-section, you literally feel like I'm not a woman. I'm not a mom. I can't have a vaginal birth. But he was just like, listen, it's either that or you, we lose you and your daughter. So I said, fine. I had my C-section. Um, my daughter was born April 23rd, 1993. She was three pounds, two ounces. And as you know, once they're born, they lose, a, they lose a couple ounces. So she went down to maybe like two, like 216 or something like that. So she was tiny. Um, no major problems with her. She did have sleep apnea. Um, and so she, my daughter was in for about... She was in for about six weeks. They were not going to let her go until she was about, at that point, she had to be three, no, she had to be four pounds uh, in, at the, in, in 1993, which is different from when my son was born six years later. So, um, yeah, so she came out of the hospital after about six weeks. She was about four pounds, still very tiny, but no no major issues and things like that. So that was great. And then um, made it past that. Uh, Wasn't sure if I was going to have another child, but ended up pregnant with this fabulous boy and uh, thought, okay, everything's going to be great. Right. So my doctor was like, you know, um, we're going to watch this pregnancy, went back on progesterone again. Um, You're going to be fine. You know, it doesn't mean that you're going to have another premature baby. Um, it was very emotional for me to watch my daughter be in the NICU unit um, with other babies around her, and some of them didn't make it. And, you know, just it was very scary time. And so when I got pregnant with my son, I was just like, I was, you know, okay, I'm going to make sure I eat right and all this kind of stuff like that. Um, and I was also exercising and you know, taking a few dance classes with my big belly and stuff. And so I was good. You know, things were great. My doctor was happy. And go in for my checkup around the same time, the same time. And my doctor takes my blood pressure and he literally falls up against the uh, the cabinets. And I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> and he's like, I cannot believe that we are here again. I can't believe we're here again. He said, but your blood pressure is so high <laughs> right now. He said, you're just, 
again, he said, I'm just surprised that you're not, that you're not dead. So he sends me across to the hospital. I call their dad, let them know, let him know. He comes to the hospital and, uh, he says, you know, it's pretty much, you know, worse than where you were. So I was like, okay, great. He said, I don't know if we're going to be able to keep your son in, um, you know, so I'm there, body swells up again. They've got me hooked up to all these machines. You know, I'm on this medication that's just got me sleepy and all kinds of, I think I was on, what was it? I can't remember the medication, but whatever it was, it was just had me crazy. So they finally come in. My blood pressure just will not go down. Um, and they come in, they say, hey, you know, your son's heart rate is dropping. We're just going to have to, we're going to have to have the C-section. I was going to have one anyway, because I had an emergency C-section, but I said, we're going to have to, we're going to have to have, you know, take him out now. So I asked to be awake. I wasn't awake for my daughter because uh, when they gave me the uh, epidural, they could still, I could still feel him cutting me. And so he's like, knock her out. (laughs) So I was like, great. So I go in and I said, I want to be awake for, for Jeremy. Um, I was able to stay awake, um, for him and, you know, they got him out and they said, you know, your, your son looks good. There's no issues. Um, and then I was like, I, you know, they brought him over to me. I saw his face and then I just completely just knocked out. I was gone. Um, you know, woke up later and, uh, you know, they said, Hey, your son's nice and healthy. There's no problems. They said, the only thing wrong with your son is that he's little. That's it. They said, your son is basically like a he's like a regular baby he's just small um he was two pounds 16 ounces no problem um he ate like a regular baby um he used a regular nipple um when my daughter was born they were using like these little tiny nipples i mean very small Uh, but they said you know first of all your son eats like a an adult (laughs) Um, I'm not sure how you're going to produce enough milk for him. They had to, they had to give him, they had to supplement him because he ate so much. And I think it was the same with my daughter too. My daughter also had a very strong sucking action. So when I breastfed her, my breast was being ripped from my chest. So Jeremy was not as, you know, not as strong, but definitely um, he just ate a lot. Um, so he was, you know, just like a regular baby. He, they kept him in, um, at that time in 1999, they didn't have to leave at four pounds. So he had to, he could leave at three pounds, four ounces. So he left the hospital, no problem. Um, but to double back, what happened to me was after I had him, I got very, very sick, uh, I had a fever that kept spiking and they couldn't understand what it was. And uh, so it was really scary because they, you know, they thought maybe I had an infection. They they did everything to see what was going on. And come to find out, I had what's called HELP syndrome. I don't remember, you know, what the letters stand for, but I know that it basically messes up your white blood count. So your immune system drops significantly. And so my doctor was like, he came into my room and I was still very emotional. They had me on all this medication. And he said, I just want you to know that you are like, you're literally inches from death. And I'm surprised that you're still here. 
to be honest. He said, you should, you should be dead right now. Um, but you're not. And he said, in my, in the history of my career, I've only had two help syndrome patients and you're the second one. And my first one was an ICU for a while. And the fact that you're not an ICU is, is a miracle. Because you should be, he said, your blood pressure was so high, we couldn't get it down. Your your fever was spiking at just, you know, an enormous rate. And I'm just surprised that you're here, but you are. So he told me that day, he said, and I quote, do not ever come into my office ever, ever again pregnant, ever. <laughs> and I said, absolutely not. You can take all of this. <laughs> I give it to museum. I don't care what you do with it. Um, I'm totally, I'm happy as my son is healthy. Um, I don't ever want to have a child ever by anyone, anyone. And God knows I love Prince. God rest his soul. And I would, I would have had his child, but never, and not even Jesus Christ or the Holy Ghost. Never, ever, ever will I have another baby. <laughs> ever, ever, ever again. And so he told me, um, and he said, I'm not, you know, he said, I'm, he said, I'm being funny, but I want you to know the reason why I'm saying that is because if you get pregnant again, you're going to die. That's how serious it is. You're going to die. So I couldn't, um, he said, you're going to get on birth control immediately. Um, I couldn't make a decision what I wanted to be on. He's like, well, you can either choose the pill or the patch. And I was just like, I don't know. Oh no, the pill or the, or get a shot. And I was like, I don't know. And I mean, as soon as I said, I don't know, he took a needle and stuck it in my butt. And he's like, well, I had to choose for you. So their father, um, because I couldn't get my tooth tied, I had had too much trauma to my body. So they had to clip him, which, you know, that's another podcast as well, but they had to clip him. Uh, so that I wouldn't get pregnant. He's like, that's just how dangerous it was for you. So um, it was a, you know, it's a fairly long recovery. I had to go to, um, uh, what do they call it? I had to go to a, a specific, a special doctor. He worked specifically with uh, blood conditions because my, my white blood count had dropped so low. Um, I had to see that specialist for, uh, like a couple of months after. And then I was on like a very heavy dose of iron. Um, and then I had to see my doctor like every couple of weeks because I was just, you know, I was basically just at death's door should be dead. Um, and my son, to be honest, but, um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's interesting, um, thinking about it cause I haven't had to think about that in a long time. And it's, you know, it's, now that I think about it, it's pretty, it's kind of emotional, um, for me because here I go again, getting emotional, but, um, you know, to think that I was, you know, that that was, I was that close to dying, you know, and my son, my son too, and my daughter would be, you know, she wouldn't have a mom or a brother, you know, and, um, I thank God for, you know, my, for my doctor, um, and for, you know, for listening to me, for, you know, just pulling out all stops, doing everything possible to make sure that I had the care that I had and that I had the best nurses um, on his shift um, that, you know, even though he didn't deliver, he didn't deliver my daughter, 
Um, he was on vacation, uh, but he came off vacation to check on me after I had her. He made sure that I had one of the best doctors. Um, all of my doctors were of color um, and or women or women of color. Um, so he, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful to him and I'm really thankful to God that I had, um, that I really, that really, that I had a black doctor who, who listened to me. Cause I'm, I'm not sure what would have happened, um, if anybody would have listened to me, you know, or even checked those things, um, you know, had they, you know, been a doctor who was white. Um, and that's sad to say, but at this time, you know, I definitely, I believe that. Oh my gosh, just listening to you recall those stories, it probably feels like it was another lifetime for you to have gone through all that, but that is such significant things to go through. It's heavy Mm -hmm. stuff. I want to also touch on the aspect of victim blaming that occurs towards black women from health professionals. And we hear and we see stories of this in prenatal and postnatal care often from saying that poor maternal health outcomes are related to having heavier bodies or being predisposed to illness, to being less educated. All of this is unfounded in the research. And we know that the problem isn't race, it is racism. And I feel mm-hmm. like your stories might be a little bit different, as you mentioned, because you had doctors and healthcare providers that were people of color. But are there any moments that stand out for you when you look back on these prenatal and postpartum chapters that highlight this that you can share with us? <laughs> the only thing that I can think of specifically was right after I had my daughter, um, I had a, I had a nurse who's, it was a white nurse and my doctor had come in right before her and he said, Hey, I'm going to send the nurse in. I want you to start getting up and, you know, walking around. So when you've had, a, if you guys, I don't know if you guys have had C-sections before, but they usually like for you to try to start walking a little bit. And so he said, she's going to come in, she's going to change her sheets, she's going to get you cleaned up. And then I want you to at least try to get up. Okay. So I was like, okay. So he leaves, uh, the nurse comes in and she's just like, okay, you know, I'm going to, um, you know, the doctor sent me in to, you know, help you get up and around and I'll be back. Literally it's two hours later and I have not seen her. So I'm laying there, you know, I haven't been, you know, I couldn't get up, you know, I newly had had a baby. Um, you know, my stitches are very new. I was still very ill. Um, and so I called out to the desk and I was like, you know, I haven't seen my nurse. So they call her. Um, so then they end up calling my doctor. My doctor comes in and he's just like, why are you not up? And I was like, well, she came in and then she left. I haven't seen her. And he was livid. So he calls the front desk and he tells them, um, I want you to get my patient, another nurse. Do not send her, um, back here and do not let her, I do not want her working when I'm here ever, ever again. Um, and so they sent me another nurse and that nurse got me cleaned up and got me going. Um, and it was just amazing to me because I was just like, wow, you know, like back then I would, I, it just didn't occur. I just thought of it as kind of like being, you know, being lazy or whatever. Um, And I mean, who's to say, maybe it was, maybe it was, you know, that I was a black woman or whatever, but, um, I know that my doctor did not like her because he didn't feel like she cared for his patients very well. 
And so he just asked that she just never, ever work with his patients ever again. Um, but the rest of my nurses, I have to say, I think I may have had, I did have one, one nurse who was why she was Irish and she was really, really good. That was with my son. But, um, the rest of my nurses were all nurses of color. And I don't know if that was like something that he specifically, you know, did on his own or whatever. Um, but, um, I got taken care of after then. And I have to say, I, again, I'm very blessed. Um, his name is Dr. Langham. He's uh, in, in Fort Worth and still still in practice. I haven't talked to him since I have my kids. So um, if it had not been for him, I don't think I probably would have laid in that bed for hours, you know. Um, and then fi- someone would finally come. Uh, but that's the, only, that's the only thing that I can think of. There also, there was another, there was another incident as well with... I think it was with my daughter. It was a, it was a nurse. And, um, one of the things she said to me was like, um, you know, I wish that I could, it was something like, and I, I can't say verbatim. This is exactly what she said, but it scared me. And she was like, you know, I could just like, I could just walk out of here with your daughter. And I was like, what? And that really, that scared me. I mean, I think that would scare any mom, you know, because, I mean, we've, we've heard of stories where, you know, there's been people who've walked in and just literally walked out of the hospital with, with people's babies. You know, this was my first kid. And, you know, to think that, so you would just, you wish that you could just pick up my daughter and leave. I mean, that was scary. She was a white woman, you know, and I was just like, oh, my God. And I'm already emotional. Um and that just scared the living daylights out of me. And I can't remember if I said something to someone about it, but I wasn't comfortable with her working with my daughter anymore because I was like, you know, maybe she was telling the truth, you know? And that's scary for a mom to think that someone might walk in and, you know, take your child, let alone, you know, someone who's not even, who doesn't even look like them, you know, and your child's being raised by someone that you don't even know or doesn't even look like them. So, I mean, I can't say that I haven't, you know, that I've had near as close to the experiences that a lot of other black women have had, um, because I've had the pleasure of having, again, a doctor, you know, a doctor of color who was there to uh, fight for what I needed and to make sure that I got what I needed. But I'm sure that, you know, I've had friends who've had those experiences and even in, you know, my years as a social worker, um, you know, my clients have certainly had those, you know, some difficult things that happen as opposed to me. But for me, that's what has happened. And even with those few experiences, those just those just those two experiences, um, I that's even that's a lot, you know. To have to endure, especially, you know, postpartum and your hormones are everywhere. Um, you know, you just, it's hard to even think on your own, you know, let alone um, try to figure out, you know, if you can sit up and eat, you know. And I think that that is such an important 
point to bring up in this conversation when we are talking about black maternal health care is that postpartum can be awful just on its own. It can be so emotional and so difficult to navigate as a privileged white woman for myself postpartum has been difficult to navigate and i and i wasn't facing racism and so mm-hmm. to also have that layered on it is mm-hmm. it's awful and that's why we need to be having these conversations and really be digging into it and sharing these stories and sharing the statistics because it is real and it is happening mm-hmm. and here's the thing with You know, when we talk about that, um, you know, with black women, the issue really is is environment and the environments that are that have been created for the black communities. And so if you go into majority black communities, and I'm not saying all black communities, but the majority of black communities uh, are food deserts. uh, The medical care um, is sparse. If they do have medical care there, it's not the best. Uh, the hospitals are not the best. We tend to end up at the city hospitals. We're also talking about women who are probably not covered by the best insurance. Um, and I'm not saying that, you know, Medicaid is is awful, um, It's but it's also not the best. Um, and, you know, even with um, Obamacare and, you know, and those women who um, who are in the workforce and working and things like that, you know, I mean, it's it's not the you know, it's not the best. We also don't have um, medical staff who look like us as well. Um, We tend to be untrust, you know, untrustworthy of, you know, doctors who don't look like us. We don't think that they are there for us. Uh, So there's like this idea of not feeling safe. Um, So if you can imagine, we don't feel safe. Uh, We're in food deserts, so we have to eat whatever is in that community, you know, in that community, uh, depending on how much money you make, you know, and where you rank in class. Um, You know, we probably don't have doctors that look like us. Uh, The quality of medical care is not great. The quality of, of care at uh, the area hospitals are not are not great. So if you can imagine, we're working with all of those factors and we have to come in and deliver a baby at the same time. And that particular hospital may or may not be the best hospital to deliver, you know? So a lot of us are not delivering at, you know, your, your bigger, nicer hospitals where you get your own room and, you know, this doctor is the best, you know, uh, delivery doctor in the world and things like that. We don't, we don't get, we don't get those. We get the city hospitals. Uh, we may or may not be able to pay for, for, uh, medical care or for, you know, pre and postnatal care. Um, you know, depending on, you know, and I'm not trying to make it seem like a stereotype because I think teen, teen mother birth is, is, um, you know, I think it's, it's in with everyone, um, and a lot more rampant, uh, I think, in the white community as opposed to the black community. But when you have teenage moms whose whose parents are also, you know, teenage moms, um, you know, you're working with all of those different factors, um, and and they're working against those things. So you're already coming in at a deficit. So having to go in and have a, you know, and have a baby, um, you know, you don't know if you're going to walk out of there because, 
you're, you know, the quality of care is such that, you know, it's not even worth anyone talking about. Um, so we're working against so many different things. And I think that a lot of people don't see those outside factors and they say, well, what does race have to do with having a baby? It has a hell of a lot to do with it because our communities are, are dying. Uh, they're already dead because we don't have adequate food. Um, you know, and you know, again, we don't have medical, medical care. We can't afford it. Um, even with Obamacare and as great as a program as that is, but, you know, it's very expensive, you know, um, you know, I wish we did have universal health care like, you know, you guys do in Canada um, or even the Caribbean, they have it as well. And I think you'd see fewer, um, you'd see fewer health problems in the U S if we had something like that. But again, you know, United States of America is a capitalist society and, you know, it's all about the, you know, the dollar bill. And so, and however we can, you know, however we can, um, we can get that. And if that means it's going to be on the backs of black mothers um, and their children, then, then they'll do that. And it's sad to say, but it's true. It's very true. And even though I am not necessarily a victim of that, I sort of am a victim of it, or I could have possibly have been even more of a victim of it. I was just blessed to have the doctor that I have. And before we wrap up today, Sonia, we wanted to ensure we highlighted the incredibly valuable and needed work you're doing to change the fitness industry. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us a bit more about Black Girl Fit and Well panels that you run? Yeah, so I had the first panel um, in April this year, and I invited about six um, Black female instructors, um, trainers, you know, wellness practitioners from all different, you know, methods, yoga, a lot of them, you know, teachers of Pilates, you know, some of them are personal trainers and they do everything. And this, the, the first uh, subjects were self-care for the black women. And also um, we talked about mindfulness and all that stuff. And what does, what does self-care mean for, for the black female? Do we know what that means? Um, how uh, self-care has been uh, colonized and how we can decolonize that for ourselves. So we had that in April this year. Um, and it's specifically for, for black women um, to come in and actually talk to, you know, people who are in, who are in fitness um, and how we can help, how we as, as fitness professionals, black female fitness professionals can, can bring more of this to our own communities and how we can be examples and what we can do um, to make sure that our, you know, that, the, that women are healthy. Um, and so the next one hopefully will be in April 2019, and that one will be specifically on strength training and, uh, and eating. So I'm really excited about that. Uh, but I wanted to also, I wanted that to also be a space for the women, the black women in my community to actually see representation of, uh, of black women who are in in fitness, health, and wellness, because when you go to some of the, you know, bigger box gyms or even some of the boutiques and things like that, you might see one or two, but to actually see a panel of six, seven, eight women, you know, it's, I mean, just to see that is, you know, is amazing, 
you know, and you think, oh, my God, we actually exist, you know. So, um, so yes, I'm really excited about 2019 and, uh, you know, and talking about uh, strength training and how that translates to um, our strength as black women and talking about nutrition and uh, how to decolonize that. You're making waves in the fitness industry, Sonia. Yeah, I'm trying to. Um, my, you know, my, the what, you know, my approach is 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 definitely different um, than than most. Um, I have made it a point to to be specific in my audience. Um, my audience is Black women. And we use women of color as a very general term. And I see uh, the, the term women of color as meaning black women also, or rather, I see women of color more so uh, as a general term for women who are non-black, but of color. Um, you know, you're uh, Latino, Latino women, Latino women, um, Asian you know, and uh, indigenous is also separate from that as well. Um, so, but I, but I am specific um, and intentional on on the um, on including and centering Black women because I feel like we are we are the most hated group, um, and that's amongst any race. There's always going to be some anti-blackness somewhere. Um, and we are the group who's going to lead the way, uh, who's going to help make the change. Uh, and that's what we're doing. Yeah. And stemming from that, can you tell us more about your brand new program, the Black Girl in Fitness Mentoring Project? What is that? And you're kicking that off soon, correct? Yes. So right now, um, this week is like registration for it. So I've always been, <clears throat> even in social work, or just life period. I love to mentor people. I really do. And I never thought that I actually loved it. I just thought, I, I never saw it as mentoring. I was just like, you know, people would just like, you know, you know, can I have a conversation? Can we have lunch? Can I ask you questions? Things like that. And so, um, I decided that, you know, I'd had a couple of people, um, you know, ask me to mentor them. One of them, uh, uh, one of our sisters in, in Black Girl Pilates, and she's like, you know, I would pay you for it. And I was like, pay me to do that? I would do it for free. But then I was just like, well, you know, um, why not, you know? And so I decided to, you know, start this mentorship project, and uh, this is the first time I'm doing it. It's a big step for me. As much as I love to talk, but still, it's a big, huge step for me. Um, and I just want to be able to you know, feed into some, you know, some newer instructors or even instructors and trainers who probably been out there for a little bit, but just, you know, let them know that, Hey, I've been there. I haven't arrived and maybe I can, maybe together I can help you get to where you are. And, uh, I mean, I'm a networking queen, so, you know, I can certainly help them with, um, you know, learning how to network and, you know, navigating the whole fitness system, but also discussing, um, how to navigate um, those very white fitness spaces, which can be very difficult, you know, and I don't see or I, ha I haven't seen so far very many um, programs specific for black uh, female fitness instructors and trainers. And so I wanted to be able to, to 
um, provide what I didn't, what I hadn't seen. I didn't have it. Um, so I decided that, you know, if it's not there, then I'll, then I'll, I'll provide it. So I'm excited about it. You know, we'll see, we'll see how it's, how it goes. Yeah. We'll make sure to put uh, all the links so everyone can find all your amazing programs. Um, And so where can everyone follow you on social media and find Mm -hmm. out more about your work? So for me personally, um, my Instagram is commando and it is exactly that commando (laughs) C O M M A N D O fitness collective. And it's a collective of everything I'm doing, pretty much. My writing, uh, my powerlifting, you'll see my kids there, my friends. Um, you'll see, I don't post a lot about Black Girl Pilates on there because Black Girl Pilates has its own Instagram. And it is, it is exactly that, Black Girl Pilates. I do not have an Instagram for Black Girl Fit and Well at this point because I'm running about four or five different platforms. <laughs> so it'll just be another one to run. But you can find uh, all of those things on uh, on Facebook. So you can find me on Facebook personally. You can find Commando Fitness Collective on Facebook. And you can also find uh, Black Girl Fit and Well on Facebook as well. So there's a page for that. And for those of you out there who are Black female Pilates instructors, you can find us on Facebook. And there is a special um Facebook support group for you. Um, so if you are new in the Pilates industry and you don't have anybody out there supporting you, you wonder where we are, we're right here. So you can just find us in the events part of the, uh, of our page, not the events part, the, um, the groups part, and you can press the join and I can bring you in. And for those of you who are black women out there and you love Pilates or you're maybe even thinking about becoming a Pilates instructor and, or you want to talk to instructors who look like you. I also have a group for you as well. Um, that group is called uh, black girl Pilates, the black girl Pilates tribe for non-instructors. So you can join that group. And the other group that's for instructors is just called black girl Pilates. And it has in parentheses instructors only. So I've got something for everybody, for those who are and those who aren't. So that's where you guys can can find me. Thank Besides you. Other interwebs. <laughs> yeah, as Anita said, we'll be sure to link to all of those in the show notes so you can find it easily. Sonia, you're incredible. Thank you so much for being on with us today. We really appreciate it. Same. Thank you guys so much. I it was it was a pleasure. On the next episode of To Birth and Beyond, we have Alexia Leachman from Fear Free Childbirth. We talk with Alexia about navigating our fears of birth, how we can come face to face with them, clear them, and the importance of this before going into a birthing experience, whether it is your first or a subsequent birth. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of the To Birth and Beyond podcast. You can find any links or resources we discussed in the show notes at tobirthandbeyond.com. And if you enjoyed today's show, we would love for you to leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe to the To Birth and Beyond podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. 